Mind Blown, Episode 2. Test, test. Okay, I listened to the last tape to make sure I didn't just imagine being another person called Chris for five minutes last week, but it happened, and I have to figure out how to make it happen again. Soon. I can't wait an entire month. So, it's Tuesday, May 18th. I've been here 718 days, meaning I have 1,108 days left. (sighs) Okay, so this morning when I woke up and went into the bathroom, someone had written on my mirror in Sharpie. There was a circle around my reflection of my face and then an arrow pointing to it. And then in shaky handwriting next to it, it said, This is the way out. And it was signed W-A-L, and then the marker skidded down the glass as if the person writing it had lost the ability to control their arm any longer. Totally normal way to wake up. I immediately assumed it was Roger. Roger is 25 and probably the smartest guy I've ever met, and not necessarily in a good way. Roger was what they sometimes call a criminal genius. As a kid, he had taught himself to pick locks and crack safes, and he worked his way up to the position of fairly successful criminal before he decided to go straightish and become a corporate con artist. He got busted defrauding investors out of millions of dollars in a Ponzi scheme that was absolutely elegant in its brilliance. Roger told me all about it. He wasn't even in it for the money. He just loved wiping people out. He really got off on knowing that he was ruining lives, leaving a trail of desperation and misery in his path. More than anything, he loved that he was doing it by outsmarting people. He found that part of his crimes thrilling. He claims he hated himself for it, but I don't know that I believe him. His plan was going great except for one thing. Roger is a complete narcissist, and as a narcissist, he has an enormous ego, and he had to tell someone about how brilliant his scheme was. Unfortunately, he told an undercover Fed who had been posing as one of his booty calls. Yeah, it's complicated. Anyway, Roger had ripped off the wrong people and was headed to life in prison when Price offered him an alternative. Come spend five years at their institute, and maybe they could fix his brain. Turn off the part that lives to destroy people. Turn him into a productive member of society. Some clockwork orange shit, but with computers instead of Beethoven. Really makes me wonder who's behind this place that they have the power to yank someone out of prison like that. We all have our theories. Half the people in here figure it's the government, specifically DARPA, that makes this place possible. Which is hard to argue against. They do have a history in dabbling with this stuff. Anyway, Rogers cracked the locks and broke into my room before to pull off stupid jokes, so I assumed it was him. I went to security. The guard we all call Engelbert was on duty. We call him Engelbert for no reason other than the fact that they don't use their real names here, so we just gave them random embarrassing nicknames. I told Engelbert I was certain Roger had broken into my room. I just wanted the surveillance video of my bathroom last night. He shrugged and let me watch it and, well, we watched the video feed from my bathroom for the night and it turns out, um, I did it. I did the whole thing without even waking up. I sleepwalked, I sleep found a Sharpie, and I sleep wrote on my mirror. It was all caught on video. Everything I do in my quarters is caught on video, including using the bathroom. Yeah, even that. Although they promise they don't watch. I guess it's not that hard to believe that I would draw something like that given what I've been through with the whole Chris deal. And I get it. Given the nature of the trials I participate in, there's always the outside chance of weird side effects like sleep writing. But what was the W-A-L part? Was I in the process of writing more? Like, walk out, or walls mean nothing, or walrus. Now I get it. I am the walrus. Get a grip, Tim. You're gonna need a grip if you're gonna get out of here. Okay, inventory time. Seven memories. Crib, watching parents argue, broken knee, clown with an ax, chasing the guy who stole my laptop, Chandler, Kendra headlights. Wait a minute, was I chasing or was he? Thursday, May 20th. I woke up in a panic for some reason this morning and I don't know what caused it. I mean, 
you know, maybe it's the crushing weight of my reality crashing down on me. <laughs> couldn't be that. It didn't help that Roger, and it was definitely Roger this time, he even admitted it, broke into my room and left a copy of a book on my dresser, The Demolished Man by Alfred Bester. I asked him why that book, and he told me to read it. I threw it on a pile of books in my room. I read a lot these days, mostly sci-fi. I don't know if I was a sci-fi fan in my previous life, but pretty much everything I read now is sci-fi or horror. Life imitating art, huh? It's so weird. Sometimes I'll be reading and I'll have this really vivid sense that I've read it before. Like, literary deja vu. I guess maybe I read some of this stuff before the accident? The most striking example of this was when I read the short story The Jaunt by Stephen King. It's set in a future where instantaneous interstellar travel is possible, but before traveling, the jaunt in question, travelers are sedated. Anyway, this one kid wants to find out what happens if he stays awake during the jaunt, and it turns out that during the one second that it takes to travel to the outer rings of Saturn or wherever you're going, your consciousness spends an indescribable amount of time floating in nothingness. Millennia, eons maybe, and the consciousness is stuck in nothingness, alone, unable to do anything but wait and slowly go very very insane. When the kid comes to in reality, he's a screeching white-haired wreck and he can only howl, long jaunt, longer than you think, over and over again before clawing his eyes out. Yeah. When I read it, I got chills. It's a nightmare scenario being stuck in nothingness for an impossible amount of time, but the thing is, I recognized the chills. I knew I had read this story before, and I knew it had affected me just as deeply as it was affecting me now. One of the characters in the story says, it's eternity in there. What a nightmare. It's eternity in there. Anyway, later that night I was having dinner with Nina, and she could tell I was stressed out and asked me what was wrong, and before I thought about whether it was a good idea or not, I told her I wanted to escape from the Institute. I didn't tell her about Chris or anything, I just said I wasn't sure volunteering here was the right decision, and I wasn't 100% convinced I'd even volunteered. I was expecting Nina to tell me I was just being paranoid. She's a profoundly level-headed person to the point of being stoic. I know why all the other GPs are here, but Nina's never told me about how she wound up in this place. Kira thinks it's just for the money, but Nina doesn't strike me as the type. But then again, what do I know about other people and types? I don't even know anything about myself. The point is Nina didn't tell me I was being paranoid as I expected her to. She whispered that she'd been having those feelings lately too. I wanted to press her on this, but she gave me a quick wink and gestured towards a camera and a security guard down the hall. I guess someone on the staff overheard us despite our best efforts to stand in a spot where the cameras don't have great coverage and keep our voices low enough that they wouldn't get picked up, because when I went to my quarters I had an administrative email that linked to the video of me signing the contract with Price. The subject header of the email simply read, Friendly Reminder. Later that day I ran into Price in the hallway and he asked if I got his email and I said yes, and he asked if that put my suspicions to rest and I said I wasn't sure. Then he chuckled and said, Could you be any more paranoid? Just like friggin' Chandler. I hate Price. But like the man said, just because you're paranoid don't mean they're not after you. I'm not doing the memories today. I'm not in the remembering mood. Saturday the 22nd. I got out again last night. I did it. I was Chris for almost an entire hour. Okay, quick backstory. So I'd been playing basketball with Roger and Simon. Simon is a scrawny kid. Out in the quote-unquote real world, he would have been called a crust punk. He's just skin and bones and tattoos. Simon had lived on the streets and was pretty much dedicated to sex, drugs, and whatever passes for rock and roll in his circles. He'd started using that stuff called K-Sync that was in the news a lot when I was recovering in the hospital. 
You probably heard about it. It was a synthetic concoction from Estonia or someplace that combined all the effects of cocaine, molly, heroin, speed, meth, DMT, ketamine, and a heavy dose of LSD in one super trip. It ended up killing like 600 people in a month before it mercifully disappeared. Simon apparently took a near-lethal dose that just melted his entire cerebral cortex, and Price and his gang found him, took him off the streets, and offered to try to fix him. Kind of like me, but Simon doesn't have memory problems, he's just fried. Anyway, the point is that Simon was playing basketball in the sense that he was on the court with us, but he's just so out of it all the time, he frequently just wandered off to stare at a wall or talk to a chair or whatever, so it was really just Roger and me. Roger is super aggressive at sports and a lot bigger than me, and when I went up for an easy layup that would have tied the score, he body-checked me at full force and I flew across the court like a ragdoll and banged my head super hard on the concrete. I wasn't knocked out, and no, my memory didn't come back, that's not how memory loss works, but my vision got super blurry and my head was bleeding at the crown, and it hurt like hell. Two security guards rushed in, Engelbert and the one we call Cross because he has a big dumb David Crosby mustache. They put me on a stretcher and wheeled me immediately to the diagnostics station. Both Price and Cho were there and clearly agitated. They were arguing about potential damage to the wet net. I mean, they didn't sound terribly concerned about me, but that doesn't surprise me. I laid my head inside the cylinder and within what seemed like just a few minutes, I was back inside the old infinite water slide. I decided that I would call this jaunting, like that delightful short story. I jaunted and I opened my eyes, or Chris's eyes, and I was back in his bedroom. The room had changed. The life support stuff was all still hooked up, but the blinds had been opened. There were fresh flowers everywhere and a banner that read, Welcome Back Chris, over the door. Chris's mom and brother were there, deep in prayer. Had they been praying this whole time? All week? There was also three other people. There was a man in his early 50s and two younger women who were busy tidying up the already immaculate room. When my eyes fluttered completely open, the mom saw and cried out, He's back! I was awake enough to consider saying, it's the second coming of Chris, but fortunately I didn't get the words out because I doubt that would have played well considering the audience. Everyone made a fuss over me, which, you know, I get. The tall guy sat me up a bit and said, do you remember me? It's your brother Luke. Luke was shouting and talking slow, which again, I get. You don't know how a person is going to be when they wake up from a coma. How long have I been? I managed to make Chris say. His voice was reedy, barely audible. 216 days, the older man said, and we have prayed for your safe return to us every minute of them. Oh, Chris, do you remember anything? The mother asked. I figured she was the mother. I decided to give it a shot. Mom? I asked. Oh, son, she shrieked. She moved to hug me, but Luke suggested she go easy. I tried to sit up straight, but Chris's arms had all but atrophied. What happened? I asked. It was a fair question, one I imagine people coming out of comas ask a lot. You were in an accident, brother, Luke said. The older man came closer. I could just tell he wasn't Chris's dad. He didn't vibe like a dad. There was something not right about him. A subdued menace. But then again, I see that in everyone, so I'm not a great person to judge these things. He and the two women got down on their knees next to the bed. The women seemed to follow his every move, like backup singers or something. Lord, thank you for bringing Christopher back to us safely. We know in your infinite wisdom and kindness you protect all of your children, and I really didn't want to waste however much time I had, so I cut him off by saying, Thank you, Father. Oh, dear, the woman says. He thinks you're Paul. This ain't your daddy, Luke shouted. Your daddy's at work. This is Pastor Dan from the church. I had, of course, met Father in the churchy sense, but I guess not all religions do that. I played along and squinted my eyes, pretending I was having a hard time seeing. I'm sorry, Pastor Dan, I croaked. 
Chris croaked. Sorry. Where, where is she? I asked, barely lifting a finger to gesture at the picture of Kendra. Ruth? Mom asked. So her name was Ruth. Well, honey, you know she has a life of her own and... We don't know, Luke shouted. Y'all broke up last year and we ain't heard from her since. I gestured to my ears that he didn't need to shout, but he continued to the entire time I was there. I was able to get the following information by pretending to be confused. Chris's last name was Taylor. His family were fundamentalist Christians and they lived in a suburb outside of Omaha, Nebraska. Luke was my brother, older by three years. Paul, Chris's father, traveled for work distributing religious texts and was frequently out of town as he was now, but he would return post-haste. Chris was 22 and attended a university somehow connected to the church. The family was clearly very devout. I had a lot of questions that might have blown my cover, such that I had a cover, like, have you ever heard of an institute where they do freaky experiments on people's brains? And if so, how do I get there? I want to use this body to go there, break in, and free my real body. That might not have landed as smoothly as I would have liked. I remember the V logo that was on all the equipment here and back in the institute. Last time I'd seen it, I knew I had to investigate the connection, but, well, frankly, I forgot. Listen, you try shifting your consciousness from one body to another and see if you remember everything, and then get back to me. I pointed to the V. What's that? I asked, sounding innocent. Luke tried to be helpful and explained what the machine did to keep Chris alive. So I poked directly at the V. No, that. Oh, Lord, he's forgotten his ABCs, the mom moaned. No, I know it's a V, Mom. What's the V for? Valiant technology, Pastor Dan answered. Now that I had this information, I wasn't sure what to do with it, and, well, I wasn't going anywhere, so we made small talk. Mom caught me up on what had happened in Chris's world. A bunch of people I have, of course, never heard of going about their business and surviving life's trials and tribulations. I nodded and chipped in things like, well, that sounds like Ted and good old Margaret. They seemed especially interested in catching me up in the last two seasons of a Christian singing contest reality show called Angel's Voice. I was, uh, understandably, not able to carry my end of the conversation. I noticed that both Luke and Pastor Dan were giving me odd looks. Again, I freely admit to being an almost supernaturally paranoid person, but I swear they were eyeing me like they knew I was an imposter. I started to get sleepy. Not like, oh, I've had a long day, sleepy, but like, I am going to fall asleep against my will, sleepy. The room started to get dark. I, I think I'm going under again, I muttered, quite honestly. Everyone in the room leaped up in a panic as if there was anything any of them could do. But I'll be back. I'll be... And then I was jaunting through the cosmic water slide again. I came to in the diagnostic chamber. Price and Cho had calmed down. All the systems in my head were back to normal. They had bandaged up my skull, which made me look about as insane as I felt. I was free to go back to my quarters. Price said he'd administered painkillers while I was out, but I should feel free to alert the staff if I needed more. But best of all, they told me that to make sure my wetware wasn't damaged, instead of doing diagnostics once a month, we'd be doing them once a week. That means I had a lot more chances to get out. I was already wondering if I could get into Chris's body and disconnect his head from the electrodes. Could I then stay in Omaha? Could I, per my insane plan, use Chris's body to find this place and release myself? But if I was in Chris's body, would mine be empty? I mean, of course, that's how it works, right? There had to be a better way. Or was I really just interested in tracking down Ruth and seeing if she'd take me, or Chris, back? I had to admit that as much as I fantasized about busting my body out of this place like some dystopian POW movie, I also thought I could make it work with Ruth. I kind of wanted to make it work with her. Maybe that was my motivation. 
But that in and of itself raised all sorts of ethical questions. Say she takes me back thinking I'm Chris and we, you know, I mean, that's not right. I can't do that in good faith. Why did I even remember her in the first place? Why was another guy's ex-girlfriend one of my seven memories? Maybe we both knew her. Maybe she said she loved me. So if it's me in Chris's body and she said she loved me... No, that's still so wrong, dude. I was getting ahead of myself. In this fantasy, me and Ruth fall into each other's arms like lovers and run off into the sunset, live happily ever after. But more importantly, if she knew me, me me, not Chris me, she could give me helpful information about who I was. Putting the love thing aside for a second, she could be the key to figuring out who I am. Putting the love thing aside. Easier said than done. That night in my room, I went online. We have limited internet access, and I can even post on message boards and stuff, provided I keep it anonymous and don't give any information out. I even have a Twitter account to make bad jokes about current affairs. They monitored all of it, of course, and they kill a lot of information going in and out, but honestly, that's the least of my concerns around here. I googled Valiant Technology, expecting the corporate website to come up, but I got no results that indicated such a company existed. Did they somehow filter out the results? But then again, maybe a company that caters to mad scientists doesn't use a website. Maybe they just drum up all their mad scientist business through mad scientist word of mouth. I also wanted to find out if there was any evidence of their former relationship online, so I googled the words Ruth, Chris, and Omaha. And I learned about a steakhouse chain with a very weird name. They get good Yelp reviews though, maybe I'll try it when I get out of here. If I get out of here by being Chris, that counts as being out of here, right? I mean, I'm used to this body, but oh my god, what am I saying? I have to get me out of here. I have to tell the world about this secret experiment that could be totally evil, don't I? I mean, that's number one priority, right? Yes, that is the number one priority. Although, it's not like I can't have two priorities, right? <laughs>